Thank you for listening to Emmanuel Baptist Church's podcast. For more information about the church, please visit our website at www.emmanuelmanning.com. Thanks and enjoy the sermon. Follow along as I read Revelation 17, and I'll be sending a letter out about my uh, sabbatical and what I'm going to be doing and all that kind of stuff. Uh, And let me just say thankful to the deacons and elders for recommending it and thankful to those who came to the business meeting voting it in. All right, well, let's read Revelation 17. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, and I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with uh, the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers of the earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of the earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and the ten horns that carries her. The beast you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he does, he will remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand uh, over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and those with him are called uh, and chosen and faithful. The angel said to me, The waters you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages, and the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute, They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over the royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. This morning I was reading uh, about a man, a Dutch man called Han Vermegeren. That's the best I can do. He was a Dutch artist, and he was an extremely talented forger of art. Uh, As a matter of fact, he forged some of the most famous paintings so well that the art critics and experts of his time thought they were genuine. Uh, He copied one time a a painting by a Dutch painter, uh, Vermeer. Vermeer is the the girl with the pearl earring guy. Uh, So imagine me as a girl with a pearl earring. That's what it looks like. Got it? Okay. <clears throat> easy. Easy peasy. Um, 
His forgeries were so good that he got in trouble uh, because uh, this was pre-World War II. And pre-World War II and during World War II, one of the things of the many atrocities that the Germans did is they went throughout uh, Europe as they conquered and took arts of, like artworks. Uh, and so what happened is uh, Hermann Goering, you know, anybody know who he is? Bad guy. All right, bad, bad guy. He was like Hitler's right-hand man. Uh, he purchased a painting from our painter guy, Van McGarren, okay? Uh, and this was an outrage because they thought he had sold uh, Goering like a great painting, and Goering thought he had a great painting. And so the fact that Goering ended up with that kind of traced back to our man, the art forger, and he was put on trial, okay? And so what happened is, while he was on trial, this was his defense. I didn't actually sell Goering a great work of art. I sold him a forgery. So his defense, because he was on trial for basically, um, you know, committing acts against his country by selling its greatest artworks to the nasty Germans, his defense was it was a fake, and in that case, he got in trouble with the Germans. But it's just interesting the, the way that uh, the forging of art, the forgery of art, uh, has had such an interesting history. It actually has an interesting history even to this day. They recently discovered there's a museum, the Terrace Museum in Elm France, where they don't eat freedom fries. Um, they discovered that of the 142 works of art in that museum, 82 were forgeries. And I looked this morning and there are like Hollywood stars who are right now involved in legal battles because they bought art from people only to discover that it was a forgery. So who's the uh, Saturday Night Live guy who plays banjo? Steve Martin. <clears throat> Steve Martin is involved in one of those right now, and so is uh, Alec Baldwin. So in the art world, forgeries are a big deal. They happen a lot, and they dupe a lot of people. Now, as we've been looking at the, the book of Revelation, one of the things that we've seen is that Satan, the, the, the dragon of old, is a great forgerist. What's the right word I'm looking for there? Forgerer? Forgerist. He, he, he copies stuff. All right? He copies stuff. Now, we've seen this throughout the book. So we have uh, God, who is one being, three persons, existing forever as a trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In the book of Revelation, we're introduced to the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. God around him has these living creatures who have four faces. And the devil has a beast with a lot of heads. Jesus was crucified, buried, and resurrected. And if you saw it tonight, the beast was and is not and is coming back. Jesus has a bride, as we'll see in Revelation 19 and 20 and 21. And Satan has a harlot. And this is one of the main points that I want to drive home today in just the few minutes that we speak is that the devil is completely unoriginal. He's just really good at forgery and that's what makes him so dangerous. At the end of this, what we're going to see is the things that you need to be most worried about are not the things that repel you. They're the things that attract you. Amen? Because that's what the devil is trying to do. So the way that Satan gets at our heart is through great and marvelous forgeries. They tickle our deepest desire 
and they woo us in. This is why we should not be ignorant of his schemes, because throughout this book, he's just made copies, and that's what draw the people's hearts after him. And so as God's people, we need to be about the true and living God, the real spectacle, and we need to be on guard in our lives that we're not caught off guard by being attracted to one of Satan's forgeries. Well, I have just two th- questions that I want to look at this morning as we look at this text of Scripture. The first is, who is the harlot? Who is this harlot? And, and of course, parents, I'm going to be using the word harlot a lot. And so just enjoy that conversation with your kids after church. Um, so the first question is, who is the harlot? And then the second question is, what are we to do with this? Now, again, I want to be sensitive and careful, but as we read in Proverbs 5, and as we read uh, when we were going through Ezekiel on Wednesday nights in Ezekiel 16, sometimes the Bible just uses really graphic language. And while we need to be careful, we can't completely avoid it. We shouldn't even want to avoid it, should we? We need to know that for us and our children, there are real dangers out there, and God speaks of them in graphic terms, and so sometimes we just have to acquiesce to his wisdom and do the best we can. Amen? The question number one, who is this harlot? Well, like everything else, we have to interpret Revelation in light of our overall scheme of interpreting Revelation. And what we said is, even though it has a great history in the church and it's a growing viewpoint among scholarship, the perspective that we've taken on the book of Revelation is a novel one to many people. Not in the history of the church, but to many people, the way we've been looking at the book of Revelation is we've never heard it before. And I'm just so thankful for those handful of you who've come to me over the months and said, this is really helping me to understand the Bible, because that's the only reason I'd go through the book of Revelation. All right? And the perspective that we've had uh, is that there are several ways of looking at the book of Revelation. You can look at it under what's called the historicist school. And that is Revelation 1 to Revelation 21 is kind of like a calendar of the history of the church so that Revelation 1 starts with the early church and our job is to find out what point along the book of Revelation we're in and just know that the future is there. So Revelation tells us the story of history from the coming of Jesus. Then there's what's called the idealist school, which is Revelation tells us about a battle that's always going on. My favorite commentary on Revelation is one by a man named G.K. Beale, who teaches from this perspective. And he has so many good things to say, but I don't agree with him. Because he says the book of Revelation isn't talking about any one particular historical time or event. Revelation is talking about the spiritual battle that's always going on. Then you have the third way of looking at it, which is the most prominent in our day, but is not the most prominent in church history. And that is the futurist school. That is, the book of Revelation is describing a future uh, of what God is going to do right before the end. And so, very popular in this view, and a lot of good and godly people believe it, uh, is that we're sort of living in the first couple of chapters of Revelation, but then something like the rapture is going to happen, and then the rest of it engages with Jesus coming back in a millennium. And that is very popular, and a lot of people write about it. But it's relatively recent in its popularity. Most people in church history haven't believed that. And then you have where I am, uh, and that is something called the preterist interpretation. Everybody say preterist. That's just a word that means fulfilled. And so the way we've been looking at the book of Revelation 
is that the book of Revelation is actually talking about something that was future to Christians when it was written, but is past to us now, mostly. And what we said is that the book of Revelation is overwhelmingly fulfilled in the destruction of the temple in the year A.D. 70. And what I've tried to show you throughout this whole series is that I think this helps us to read the Bible better, and it helps us to make the most sense of what happened. And so for some of you who are visiting, I'm going to say some things you've never heard before, but just say you're kind of coming in on the tail end, and if this is really intriguing to you, you can talk to me about it, or you can go to our website and go back and look at past sermons. So as we look at this, prof, this harlot, you know where I'm going to go. I'm going to find something in the first um, century of Christian history that is fulfilled by this. Uh, and, and usually when people talk about the great harlot and the beast, they normally sort of put those together and look at them as the, um, the empire of Rome. And I think Rome is indeed the beast. We'll talk about that for a minute here. But when we ask this question, who is the harlot, let me give you my shocking answer. Are you ready? My shocking answer as to who the harlot is, is it's Jerusalem. It's Jerusalem. Now, why would I say that? We have this harlot riding on a beast. Why would I say it's Jerusalem? Well, throughout this text, if you have eyes to see it, especially in chapter 18, four or five times you have this phrase describing the harlot who's called Babylon. And the phrase that's used is the great city. Look over in chapter 18 at verse 10. Then stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city. Or look down at verse 16. Alas, alas, for the great city. Or let's look down at verse 18. What city is like what? The great city. Then look at verse 19. And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, mourned crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city. Verse 21, so Babylon uh, will the great city be thrown down. So Babylon, that is this harlot, is called what? The great city. Now, if you have eyes to see it, go back to Revelation 8, 11. Revelation 11, verse 8. This is called the interpretational rule of first mention. In other words, the first mention of something sets the interpretation for the rest of the mentions of it. You got it? So look at Revelation 11, verse 8. And their bodies, that's those two witnesses, will lie in the street of the great city, there we go, that is symbolically called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. Who is the Lord? Jesus. Where was Jesus crucified? Jerusalem. So the great city is Jerusalem. And a lot of people will look at my interpretation and they'll go, Drew, I mean, Jerusalem was sort of a big deal, but compared to Rome, how can you call Jerusalem a great city compared to Rome? Well, I could take you back to many people, to Josephus, Tacitus, and others that just said Jerusalem was one of the great cities. The Temple Mount was one of the wonders of the ancient world. It was a great economic center for that whole region. Uh, it, people who were Jewish because of the Old Testament were spread all over the world talking about how great Jerusalem was. But we know from Revelation 11 that uh, for the purposes of Revelation, Jerusalem is called 
the great city. So when now we see this harlot who is called Babylon, who is called the great city, what we see is that because of their rejection of Jesus, that uh, Jerusalem and Israel were now being called Egypt, Sodom, and Babylon. We see this harlot riding on the beast, which is Rome. So this harlot is on the back of Rome. I'll remind you, just as a way of understanding this, that in John 19, 15, when the Jews rejected Jesus at his trial, they said, we have no king but who? Caesar. We have no king but Caesar. And let Jesus' blood be upon us. Or how about this? Throughout the entire Bible, the idea of someone going after other gods and other nations, uh, people who do that are called adulterous and harlotous. And with only two exceptions in the Old Testament, every time a nation is called an adulteress, it's describing Israel. Because you can only be an adulteress if you're married to somebody else. And the Israelites were married to God. They're the only ones that could be an adulteress. They were the only ones in covenant with God. Look in chapter 18, verse 24. Talking about Babylon, this harlot, this great city. In chapter 18, verse 24, it says, And in her was found the blood of who? And of saints and of all who have been slain on the land. Where were all the prophets killed according to Jesus? In Israel. In Jerusalem, Jesus looks at the Pharisees and he says this, which of the prophets did your fathers not kill? So when we begin to think about this, we begin to see, okay, this, this might be something different than we often think. Or how about this? And I won't take time to go into this, uh, but the way that this harlot Babylon is described as being destroyed follows along the lines of the way that Israel was talked about as having been destroyed in the Old Testament. It says, I'll gather you together, I'll lay you naked, and I'll burn you with fire. That's the way that Ezekiel talked about it, and that's now the way that John is talking. But even more so, if you're a good Old Testament Bible reader, when you hear the way this harlot is described, this is the first thing I think you would think. Are you ready? He's talking about the high priest. He's talking about the high priest. Why? Because it says that this harlot is dressed in all kinds of colors. Look at chapter 17, verse 4. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations. And it says, on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the earth's abominations. Scarlet, purple, linen, gold, something written on the forehead. We've seen stuff written on the forehead before, haven't we? Or in chapter 18, verse 16, it says, Alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and jewels and with pearls. Now I'm going to give you a guess here. What kind of colors and things do you think the high priest of Israel wore? Linen, scarlet, purple, gold, and there was something written on his forehead. 
Listen to what uh, Exodus 28 says. These are the garments they shall make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checkerwork, a turban, and a sash. Thus shall make holy garments for Aaron and your brother's sons to serve me as priests. They shall receive gold and blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. And it goes on, it says they'll have an ephod and two, um, two shoulder pieces. And it says, and the skillfully woven band on it shall be made like of one piece of gold and blue and purple and scarlet and fine twined linen. And it says that on the, the headpiece of the high priest will be something that says, holy to the Lord. And now the Lord is revealing behind the scenes what the nature of something is really like. And he says it's no longer holy to the Lord. It's now mother of all adulteries and blasphemies. Interestingly enough, it also describes the curtain that was in the temple. And do you know where the curtain that was in the temple was made? Babylon. Babylon. Josephus tells us that. He's a historian. So... The picture here uh, is of something that when we read about it sounds to us kind of gross because we're seeing the full picture of it. But even John got drug in for a minute because at one point in our text it says, when I looked at this, I marveled. And the angel said, what are you doing? Stop marveling. And so here's the picture. This, this harlot isn't some you know, awful, anti-religious, um, you know, terrible, from the outside, murderous-looking thing, what we see is we see something that when John sees it, even as he's hearing the description about it, is drawn in almost in worship. And the angel has to go, knock that out. Quit. This is uh, a, a wretched, murderous person and what John is describing here isn't some terrible pagan thing. He's describing the very ritualistic religious system that God ordained in the Old Testament. The devil is great at forgery. And he's great at taking things and making them look beautiful when inside there's nothing but dead men's bones. And this reminds us of a truth. This is the first thing. So we'll go to our second question. What can we learn from this? Here's what we can learn from this. First of all, religious sin is the worst sin. Religious sin is the worst sin. You'll remember in 2 Timothy chapter 1, I've said this a lot of times, but I just need to grab our attention by telling you this truth. The Apostle Paul says, I'm so thankful, thanks be to God, who's shown his grace to sinners, even me, even though I was the worst. Flip to 2 Timothy chapter 1. Let's look at this for a second. Not 1 Timothy. I always do that. 1 Timothy 1.15. Y'all are still flipping because I told you the wrong book. This, so 1 Timothy 1.15, look what it says. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Keep your finger there, don't turn back. And many of us, when we read this, here's what we think. Oh yeah, Paul feels like I do sometimes, that I'm the absolute worst of sinners. I'm the foremost, I'm the worst. Don't you feel that way sometimes, like you're the worst sinner? Guess what? You ain't. 
you're a bad one. You're a hell-deserving one. But Paul's making a point here. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the foremost. Look at verse 16. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. In other words, Paul is saying, I'm not just sort of feeling terrible about myself that I'm the worst sinner. I was saved on purpose because I was the worst sinner. So that in me, Jesus might display his perfect patience for those who believe. In other words, God took the worst sinner ever. And wouldn't you agree, after Jesus, Paul was the best Christian ever? So what Jesus was doing in saving Paul was something very particular. He was demonstrating to the whole world that he had the ability to take the worst sinner and make him the best Christian. So that no matter who you are or where you're from, you can trust in Jesus no matter what you did. And he can make something really good out of you. And Paul says, I was saved to prove that point. Now, here's my question. Are you ready? Was Paul a wicked sinner or was Paul a religious sinner? This doesn't take long. Was Paul a wicked sinner or was Paul a religious sinner? He was a religious sinner. Do you see that? The worst sinner ever isn't somebody who is getting drunk and hooking up at a bar last night. The worst sinner in the world is probably somebody sitting in a pew or standing in a pulpit this morning. Because whereas people sin for all kinds of reasons for their own name, when you commit religious sin, you're committing sin in whose name? Jesus' name. And so when you're looking at the wicked people in history, you, you, you tend to start with the people that you might be most drawn to as the most moral. You feel me? And so when we look at this harlot, the first thing we need to learn from it is that religious sin is actually worse. I mean... Don't say this to anybody, but better to have never heard the gospel and go to hell than to sit in a pew for 40 years and then do it. Because you hardened your heart and rejected the gospel year after year after year after year after year. You sat under the water of the word day after day after day, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, and you harden your heart. That's worse. So seriously, if we're going to come here and gather together, be soft hearted. I'm not saying don't come to church. Because it's the word that saves. But you understand my point, don't you? It was the Pharisees that were Jesus' great enemies. It wasn't the prostitutes, was it? The second thing we can learn from this is this. The things that are most dangerous to us are the spectacles that attract us, not the things that repel us. So listen to me. Both may be bad... But Frozen is worse than Harry Potter. You feel me? And now, the church got all up in an uproar when Harry Potter came out. And I don't want to discuss that or get into that, except to say this. I don't remember the church ever, like, turning its ire against Hannah Montana. But I bet Hannah Montana was far worse. Because when you read Harry Potter, you read it with your guard up. When you watch Hannah Montana, you forget that all adults look like idiots in Disney shows and they're rarely around. And that's no way for kids to be raised. You feel what I'm saying? It's, it's always the things we're not looking at. That's where the hook is. All right? Harry Potter may be bad. I'm just saying Frozen is worse. They're not bad. You know what? They're not awful. You just get, it's an illustration. But I do want to beat people in the head when they sing Let It Go, but that's my own problem. And we know from Revelation 2.20 that the spirit of the harlot was at work in the church. 
And so the last thing we need to be is triumphalistic about us versus those sinners. The devil does his best work on us. He does the most evil through us. We need to be guarded against our own desires, not the wickedness of those people out there. It's so easy when you're a pastor just to preach every week about how terrible the homosexual agenda is. Yeah, that's bad. Not as bad as some of the sexual crap that's going on in churches, is it? Which one is worse? I don't want to preach against their sins. They're not here. Whose sins do I want to preach against? Mine and yours. Because those are the ones that are going to kill us. And those are the ones that really hurt the cause of Christ. Everybody can look at a homosexual marriage and go, that's not right. And that's not going to lead to anything fruitful. Give it 50 years. I mean, goodness gracious, did you ever think... In 1973, when Roe versus Wade uh, was passed, that we'd ever be seeing all these years later Alabama and other states signing bills against abortion? People can see the, the nature of wickedness in due time because it's just completely bankrupt. But we keep propping up all kinds of sin with our own religiosity, and that's where we really need to focus our attention. It's not on their sin, it's on mine. And it's so difficult because the devil holds before us shiny things that could even dupe the Apostle John. Secondly, usually the way he dupes us involves our wallet. Now, I didn't read Revelation 18. I want you to do that this afternoon. And here's what I want you to notice. It's when Jerusalem is destroyed, it's one group of people after another weeping and wailing over her because they had invested in her. Your money is the well-worn path to your idol. And there's not a single one of us in here above that, is there? I mean, goodness gracious, the next time a hurricane is coming, two things are going to happen. Number one, I'm going to forget to buy water and gas until it's too late, and then I'm going to freak out because I don't have what I need, which is water and gas. Every time, my idolatry of comfort is just revealed. It's like I feel better if I have gas and water and I forget I've got God. Right? Gets me every time. Does it get you every time? Every time some major national, national crisis appears to be on the horizon, well, I just freak out. Why? Because at the end of the day, more than I would love to admit, that's where I find my security. And Jesus talks about this so much. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in what we possess is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passes away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. What is John saying? John's saying that if we put our trust in other things to make us feel comfort and security, whether it's relationships, whether it's money, whether it's possessions, whether it's in our own sense of us knowing what's good, beautiful, and true, whatever we put our hope in, if it's not of God, it's going to let us down and it's going to further push our hearts away from God and it's investing in the wrong things. If I told you tomorrow that BP was going to go bankrupt in a week, would you invest in BP? Then listen to me. The world is passing away. Don't invest in it. Don't invest in it. Jesus says, no one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one 
and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Paul says this, the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. In the last days, there will come times of stress. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to the form of a religion but denying its power. And so the two, three things we can learn is religious sin is the worst kind of sin. The shiny stuff is what catches the fish, and it's also what catches us. You need to be more on guard about what attracts you than what repels you. And number three, the wallet is the well-worn path to idolatry. Wherever you think your money lies, for most of us, is where our heart is. And what we need to do is to set our hearts free from the love of money. Every week... When you come in here and give, what you might be saying is, well, we got to pay the preacher. we got to pay the bills. If I don't do this, somebody will notice and say something. God's keeping accounts. That's not giving in faith, is it? It's not doing you any good, is it? But if every week you come in and you say, I'm generous even though I'm struggling because my trust is in God, I'm, I'm generous because I believe that this is my way of letting God and the world know that my hope is not here, then you're giving in faith. And the Bible says God blesses that kind of giving. So let's apply this before we're done. First application is a question. How can we tell if we've begun to love the harlot? Here's an easy question, are you ready? Do God's commands seem burdensome? while the world's demands seem easy? If obeying God seems, and sometimes it is difficult for all of us, right? But if it just seems like a labor all the time, then you're beginning to love the harlot. And if passively falling into what the world does and what the world watches and what the world does for fun, if you just fall into that, you're just beginning to love the harlot. It says that when Jacob served for Rachel, he served for seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. If you were to know the love of God and to love him with all your heart, his commands would seem very often the same thing. Well, how if we love the harlot, how can we move away from that? Are you ready? Look at something more beautiful. Anybody ever heard of the philosopher William James? Sounds like an Old West outlaw. Anyway, he wrote a book um, about human psychology. Here's what we, this is the nerd moment of the sermon, guys. There's got to be one every week. Here's what he says. Our attention determines how we perceive the world around us. Millions of items of the outward order are present to my senses but they never enter into my experience. Why? Because they have no interest for me. My experience is what I agree to attend to. Only those items which I notice shape my mind. Without selective interest, experience is an utter chaos. What does he mean by that? There's too much happening all the time for you to take it in, right? There could be a fly buzzing in the back of the church. There could be a noise coming out of the air conditioning unit. There could be a buzz from the lights. There could be stuff driving by. There could be people getting up and walking out. There could be <coughs> all kinds of noises. 
You could be looking at my shoes and how my socks may don't match. I don't know. There's a million things, and you can't take them all in uh, because if you try to take it all in, it would be chaos. So each of us is given this amazing thing called attention. And so what you're supposed to do is focus your attention on the good, the beautiful, and the true. And here's why it's important, because what you give your attention to determines who you are. What you look at is very important because what you look at determines what you are. The stuff that you watch, the stuff that you look at is determining and shaping your soul all the time. This is what Paul says in Romans 12.1. Don't be conformed to the image of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The thought behind that is at any given point, what you're attending to is either shaping you or transforming you. You don't get to choose whether or not you're shaped and transformed. The only thing you get to choose is what you're shaped and transformed by. And so your attention, listen to me, is the most, most valuable resource you have. So here's my question. What are you looking at? What are you listening to? What are you being influenced by? If your attention is the most valuable thing that you have and you find yourself starting to love the harlot, you need to look at something more beautiful. Amen? You need to do a, an audit of your life. I've been doing that this week. You need to be doing an audit of your life because listen to me, and this is true of me and it's true of everyone. It's true of my children, it's true of your children and your grandchildren. That the whole point of television is one of a couple of things. Either buy what I'm selling or be shaped by what I'm showing. But the most important lesson that you learn from TV and from games is that you're at the center, man. This world is created for you. It's all about what brings you joy and entertainment. When we become spectators, the whole world of spectacle is constantly saying to ourselves, you're at the center, you're the big deal. And then what happens, and I have an Instagram account, and I had a Facebook account, and I have a Twitter account, and what those things do is not only are we now spectators, but we also put ourselves out there as the spectacle. Look at this beautiful picture from my best side that I edited and filtered. Aren't I amazing? I wonder how many likes I'm going to get. So this world says you're at the center, and then it even puts us at the center of what we're looking at. No wonder we're screwed up. The world is going to give you a lot of beautiful things. It's going to tell you that you're beautiful. Look at yourself. You're at the center. And what Williams James says is what the Bible says. What you give your attention to is shaping you. And so what should we be giving our attention to? Theologian John Murray said this, the most solemn spectacle in all history a spectacle unparalleled, unique, unrepeated, and unrepeatable is the cross of Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon said this, Was there ever such a picture as that which God drew with the pencil of eternal love dipped in the color of almighty wrath on Calvary's summit? Men of old, before the time of all of the modern media that we had, could go on for page after page after page after page of the beauty of Jesus. And we can't even mutter a few sentences without running out of everything that's in the tank. Amen? We need to take our attention and we need to aim it at things. The good, the true, the beautiful, God and his son. 
so that in doing so we're shaped into real lovers and people who have been won over to the true beautiful thing so that we're not enamored with all of the shiny things. Tony Ranke says this, Christ risen up at Calvary marked the pinnacle spectacle for which all other spectacles in world history will never reach. The preeminent spectacle of divine life and divine love freely offered to the gawking world. The axis of the cross marks the turning point for God's plan for this universe. The cross points in four directions as the spectacle brings together heaven, earth, all nations to his left, every nation to his right. Rejected by earth, forsaken by heaven, this crossbeam held the Savior's arms open wide. Here divine wrath and divine mercy collided. Even more expressive than the global flood, the cross of Christ was a public display of God's righteous anger towards billions of sins once passed over and now judged in the full manifestation of his wrath in visible human history demonstrating his great love. Don't look at harlots. Look at Jesus and you'll be transformed into his glorious bride. We'll see this in the next coming weeks. Do an audit this week of where your attention goes and see if it doesn't determine how you're being shaped. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Lord, help us to look at beautiful things uh, so that we might live beautiful lives all to the glory of Jesus who died to set us free and to bring us into a relationship with you. It's in his name we pray. Thank you.